officers have felt abandoned, betrayed, and forgotten about by those that um, we believed understood the importance of being loyal to police officers. Qualified immunity definitely must be in this bill. I don't care how they try to squeeze themselves out of it. You can access any beach, even a private beach, up to the high water mark. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Some voices in the news over the last week. You heard Greenwich First Selectman Fred Camillo talking about beach access, which has been restricted in several Connecticut towns during the pandemic. Also in the mix, voices from the legislature's first Zoom public hearing before a long-awaited special session. You heard West Haven activist Barbara Fair and State Police Union Representative Andrew Matthews. Meanwhile, there was news shortly before the show began that the federal government will pay almost $2 billion for a potential COVID-19 vaccine being developed by Pfizer and a German company. Now, Pfizer has operations in Connecticut and Governor Ned Lamont's expected to make a related announcement later in the morning. I want to welcome the panel to the show today. Rennie Folco joins us, Director of Public Policy and Law at Trinity College. Rennie, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. Also here with us, Dan Haar, columnist and associate editor at Hearst Connecticut Media. You can follow him at Dan Haar Columns on Twitter. Dan, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. And Dr. Jonathan Wharton is here, associate professor of political science and urban affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. Follow him at Preppy Poff, uh, Prof, the best handle on Twitter. Uh, Jonathan, welcome back as well. Thank you, Lucy. Good morning, everyone. And, and you can join us, too. Find us on Twitter at WMPR Wheelhouse. So earlier on Where We Live, the other show I host, we asked, do you have quarantine fatigue? Meanwhile, how's Connecticut been doing handling the COVID-19 pandemic? I want to start with you, Dan. You've written a lot about this. Uh, just yesterday, the governor sharing at a briefing that Connecticut had zero new coronavirus-related deaths on Tuesday, the third day in two weeks that the death count has not moved. And you talked about a, a milestone at Stanford Hospital. What happened? Stanford Hospital achieved on Monday uh, the discharge of the last patient with COVID. Uh, they peaked at 150. Arguably, Stanford could have been called, may, we, we could say that Stanford was the epicenter. Uh, Yale New Haven Hospital, not the system, but the hospital itself had many more, uh, I believe 440 some uh, it, it, back in the peak. But Stanford at 150 for the size of that hospital was really big. And they were down to zero as of Monday. And as of yesterday, they were still zero. That's great news. Uh, there's a lot of numbers and trends to be paying attention to. So when you look at what's been happening in Connecticut, what are the numbers you're focusing on, Dan? I look at numbers of new cases, hospitalizations, the positive test percent, and numbers of deaths, and something else called RT or r naught. So just looking really quickly at those, I won't go through all the numbers, but new cases are down from starting at the week that we reopened, May 18th, May 20th, but starting that Monday, May 18th, new cases went from 4,300 to 500. These days we're at about 500 a week. Mm -hmm. Hospitalizations, 920 to 54. We're now at 54. Uh, I believe we went up yesterday to 62. Um, but that's, again, just sort of statistical noise. Um, positive test numbers, 9.6%. We're now at 0.8%. Deaths way down, as we've discussed. This RT is a weird one. It's a measure <laughs> that is designed to replicate the number of people each infected person will infect. So if you have COVID and you infect one and a half people, that's really bad. That means the disease is spreading. And if you infect only 0.8, that's a great number. 
and that's about the range. And we are at 0.99, up slightly from 0.73. Is that a cause for alarm? Maybe because we're right where Arizona is now. Maybe not. That's a really hard one to figure out. Mm. When we think about uh, this uh, transmission rate being uh, below uh, 1%, you said that there are other states that are that are also there, Dan. Do we know in terms of where cases are growing in our state? Is there particular age groups where we're seeing cases rise? Yes, we had uh, uh, one of our, my colleague, Amanda Kuda, reported that in the week of July 5th, uh, the largest group of people in age with new cases was people ages 20 to 29. Gee, there's a surprise. Who doesn't wear a mask? Actually, it's the younger kids who I find don't wear a mask. But uh, there were 100 and the numbers are now so small that that it's hard to draw conclusions. But there were only 35 over 80. And there were 100 and some 116, I believe, 115 in the 20s. Um, and of course, they're not getting as sick, which is what leads people to that's the mm-hmm. cycle of contentment that we have that we're in as you know fatigue you said it we've got it and nobody has more fatigue about quarantining than young people because uh supposedly they have more energy than us but i don't think it's true so I want to get our panelists uh, into the discussion because both Rennie and uh, Jonathan, uh, you work on college campuses, both of you gearing up to see what your institution, um, how they'll be rolling out uh, classes. And so, Rennie, when you hear these numbers and hear that cases are rising among 20 to 29 year olds in our state, I mean, what what are your first thoughts? My first thoughts are that it's perilous. Mm. (laughs) You know, I always say that that college campuses are like uh, beached cruise ships, right? I mean, if you think about it, um, you know, people are there together. They live in close quarters. Um, they congregate for almost everything. And, um, you know, Trinity, I think, has put together a good plan. Uh, you know, they want to be obviously and totally uh, conformed to what the state is requiring. Uh, but they also, you know, want to make sure that they're, you know, or at least to the degree that they can, you know, limit any kind of outbreak. But I think one of the problems is that people are coming from all over the country, right? A lot of students, you know, would like to return, come from different areas. And so the the college has really put, had to put into effect very um, strict regulations in terms of uh, how many people can be in a classroom, people eating together, people congregating in any way. And also uh, then there has to be the regulation of social activities. So it is it is really hard. Jonathan, what are your thoughts, considering that your your institution, Southern, may have more commuter students than Trinity, uh, but as a member of the faculty, what are the things that worry you about starting up? The faculty senate at Southern has certainly been talking about it. Um, we've had our concerns. Uh, we've put them forward to the administration. The administration's aware of it. Um, the administration's trying to address it through direct communication to faculty and students in terms of steps that will take place. Uh, both in person and even how to do it online. And I know some colleges are doing what we're doing in terms of a high flex, where you split up the class in half and, you know, a part of the class shows up, but other part of the class is at least watching it online and you take these alternate days to to do that, especially with classes that are, let's say, more than 40 students. So uh, I'll certainly be lumped in that with with my class. I will say I'm grateful for Southern, at least for me to make the decision on which classes will be online along with my chairman and the dean to coordinate that. And I've even suggested I want to take my classes outside, to which the administration, by the way, has been supportive of. Uh, 
So I guess I'll expect my students to bring camping chairs if that's an idea. <laughs> um, yeah, and I would add one other point, um, you know, because I, I, my experience has been very similar. And I think Trinity has, you know, consulted as, uh, you know, continuously with us, uh, giving people choices. And uh, one of the other issues, though, you know, is international students, right? We have international students and we have to be able to accommodate them. And the time, right, the time zones become a real problem. There are some students who themselves may be compromised and can't come back. So we have a good combination of mm -hmm. remote learning and then the hybrid model as well, uh, in-person classes where there are opportunities uh, for students to join remotely. So I have to say, I think the college has, has really, um, you know, worked extremely hard uh, to make this happen for the fall. Which makes it harder on the professors if it's remote plus in person. You have uh, you have to prepare for both, I guess, right? Uh, yes, and um, I will be teaching remotely um, for a variety of reasons. Um, I uh, decided that I wanted to just have it have students know from the beginning that we would have remote classes. Um, but I have colleagues who are, you know, intending to come back and and teach in person. But if for some reason that wouldn't be possible, they could go back to remote. But I also have colleagues who have learned really how to use, you know, the remote aspect of teaching distance learning and incorporate it into their classes effectively. So I think we're all learning as, as this happens mm -hmm. before our eyes. Dan, we started off talking about the positive trends in our state. You've also looked into the state's messaging regarding testing. And so I wanted you to talk a little bit about the different messages, different groups of people in our state have gotten about uh, testing and what the priority is for the administration in terms of who is tested. Yeah, the messaging about testing has been uh, not straightforward to the whole public about who the Lamont administration wants to see get tested, which is a little bit odd. They're going, they're testing, they're, they're marketing to the groups that they want to see get tested or they're, they're attempting to, which is not so easy. They include anyone, first of all, who has any symptoms. That's simple enough. Anyone who's been exposed to a person who's sick, they want you to get a test. Anyone who uh, lives in congregate housing, not so much marketing needed there because for the most part, other than universities, which do count, congregate housing would be, would be nursing homes, prisons, that kind of thing. You don't have to market, they're there, you go to them. And then the last uh, group is a, a, anyone who's been uh, exposed to someone who's sick. I think I, if I didn't mention that. So mm -hmm. the general population, We've gone back and forth between the governor and, and other public health officials or public health officials saying that you should be tested if you're in the general population. The current thinking is no. And yet, ironically, we've been able to increase testing from about 45,000 a week in June to 77,000, I'm sorry, 71,000 a week in July. And, and double irony, which is that the percent sick is going down. So we're targeting people that are sick uh, or exposed. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't mention the fourth group. I doubled up a number. It is inner city urban residents, especially black and Hispanic, who are especially hard hit by the illness. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are the four groups. And we're not being told don't get tested because they don't want anybody to get the message you shouldn't get tested. So that's where there's a little bit of confusion, but you can't look at the numbers we have and say it isn't working. It's working. 
Oh, wasn't there some mixed messages too in terms of uh, congregate settings and nursing homes specifically? I believe a, a month ago, so ago, the governor wanting uh, nursing homes and staff to be tested weekly because we know it's, I think it was over 60% of, of residents who've died in our state were nursing home residents. But now it's uh, they've changed the tact because if uh, nursing homes, assisted living facilities uh, don't have any cases within a certain time frame, they want to make sure that they don't run out of, uh, of tests, but also the money that it takes uh, to be processing these tests. And that must be a concern for the state moving forward, thinking about a, a second wave at some point. Well, that's right. The issue was staff. The issue was that staff uh, was supposed to be tested weekly, but if they fall under a certain very low threshold, they don't have to be tested in the Lamont view. And that was challenged by New Haven Legal Aid, which said that that's not what CDC says. CDC wants those nursing home staff tested. I should say that uh, 13% of nursing home residents have died in Connecticut. Uh, 60% have been sick. Uh, we, If we lost 60%, that would be an even bigger calamity, mm, but 13% is an enormously, I mean, to, to, to look at a population, mm. any population, yeah. and say 13% have died is just an absolute uh, calamity. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of attention on the administration from the beginning of this shutdown uh, because uh, they've really had uh, to take a leadership role. Uh, this is something, Rennie, you've talked about, like in a pandemic. Uh, that's something that states should be doing, maybe not a pandemic, but when there is a, a public health issue. And you talked about how when things really get bad, as we've seen, it's up to the federal government to step in. We haven't seen that. And it's been a piecemeal approach. That's problematic. Yes, it's very problematic. And, and I don't think there is a governor in this country, if you gave uh, that individual truth serum, would say otherwise. Um, clearly, the, the states have a very, very important role. But when you come to the kinds of questions like distribution, right, of tests and testing materials and the distribution of other PPE, I mean, the idea that the states were in a competition with one another and in some cases with the federal government to get these things is just crazy. It's just completely crazy. And um, I, I think that this will become a case study, uh, uh, you know, when, when it's in the rear view mirror of, of, of failed leadership at the national level. And I don't mean that as a partisan statement. I mean it as a statement about the actions that were taken and the actions that should have been taken and were not. And, and I think I just think it has been um, extraordinary the degree to which the federal government has really abdicated its responsibility to do the things that it does best. And um, uh, others may want to weigh in on that as well. Mm -hmm. Actually, if I can chime in on that, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what Rennie offers, I'd probably counter and say that when it comes to the area of something like public health, it's been largely seen and something that's oftentimes carried out by the states and mm -hmm. by local government. And they've been learning along the way in terms of coordinating and communicating. And as she had mentioned, I've even offered in my public policy class that I just finished teaching during the first summer session, that this is an interesting case study and how there can be a breakdown, but also better pathways of coordinating and communicating between all these different branches and agencies and, and governments at the state and local levels. Rennie, oh, you, I, you, oh, I'm sorry. Ahead, just Dan. what I would add is that I do think, though, there are certain there are certain things that the federal government is better at doing. And, and one of the main failures, in my view, is a consistent message on what we should expect of the public. And we can just take something as simple as masks, mm -hmm. that that needs to be a national policy if you really want to contain this virus. 
because it does not respect state boundaries. Dan, why did you say it's nonpartisan? That seems odd. It's very partisan. You may, I mean, you may not, you you may be looking at it nonpartisan, and that's valid. But I, I, it's perfectly partisan. The leader of one party is leading the charge and denying that there's a problem. I don't see why that's nonpartisan. No, I just meant I wasn't making a partisan statement. You weren't making right, right, right. Yes, not yes, yes. no. It ha- I, I would agree. It's been highly partisan. But I think, and I, I'm not disagreeing with anything anybody said. I just think it's important to know that if things had gone as they have gone in the past, there would have been a federal response that would have been far more helpful. And particularly um, what we say about what we expect our population to do when you have a pandemic of this kind, it can't just be patchwork and pick and choose because you will not be successful. And I think the numbers show if we look at the map today, that it has this policy has not been successful. Uh, Rennie, when you say when you look at the past, you can look at how the government responded to polio and uh, see how it's uh, very different from how our federal government today has handled this COVID-19 pandemic. Yes. And in fact, I assigned that movie in my class. There's a PBS video on polio. I don't know if people have seen it. It is definitely worth seeing. And there was a clear message and it was hammered home every day. There was a policy. Um, some people may know that was the origin of the March of Dimes actually came during the polio um, epidemic. And so I think if we look back historically, the federal government has had an important role to play. But it is also true that public health in general is executed and implemented at the state and local level. Mm. Uh, Jonathan, to pick up on that, uh, we know that the governor has faced some criticism and political opposition to his many coronavirus executive orders. I've lost count how many there are. Do you think that criticism is warranted, that uh, lawmakers have been shut out of that process um, to some degree? I think this is a genuine concern because, look, this is just uncharted territory in terms of how to carry out something like this. And so, uh, you know, it's ideally, theoretically, and even constitutionally, it's supposed to be a balancing act between the branches. We know this all too well. Um, And so when you're faced with this dynamic of emergency situation, um, you know, it it can oftentimes happen and lead to gubernatorial uh, power. So I'm kind of interested to see what will happen beyond even the special session, uh, what will take place in terms of uh, addressing these concerns surrounding the governor and what he's, his attempts to trying to deal with, uh, faced with the General Assembly. Mm. We've been talking a lot about uh, the, the trends here in Connecticut. Dan, you took a, a trip to the Big Apple to see how uh, New Yorkers are handling uh, their uh, reopening. Uh, what, did you, what did you see? Nine blocks from the place where I was born uh, on, on East 84th Street and 2nd Avenue. It was like 1999. When I got there on, it was the, the first trip, I actually didn't get to the city until June, which was shocking because I like to get down there a lot. And it, it was it was like mob scene on the street. It was a Saturday night at about 8.30. And it was, there were four bars slash restaurants, one on each corner in that particular corner. I think maybe one corner doesn't have one. Just spilling out into the streets, a mob scene. All people in their, you know, 20s, I, evidently, not entirely, but largely, and so what we find is an exaggerated side of the city where half the people are really, really careful. Remember, 30,000 deaths in New York City alone. And half, I think it's up to upwards of 30. And, and half the people just couldn't care less, like nothing happened. There's almost no one in between. 
Mm. I was it, interested it's in... interesting, actually, Lucy, we're going to chime in because, uh-huh. uh, you know, as I think I mentioned to you, I went to New York myself last week um, for, for a doctor's appointment. And, and like Dan, I, I had almost the opposite experience being on the West side in the eighties. And it was, I was surprised, but it was just calm. I have to worry about the traffic, even when the light was not, you know, going the direction for you. I was, I've ever seen that on a Thursday afternoon. It just seems so unusual to, to see less traffic and fewer people out. Speaking of unusual, Dan, you wrote about uh, mask ambassadors. Uh, tell us about that uh, scene at, at a local playground. Oh, yeah, that was at uh, 23rd and Broadway. What is that? Madison Square Park down there by the Flatiron Building. And there, there was a woman in a red vest uh, working for the Parks Department. And she was she had a, on her hat or, or on her vest, it said social distancing ambassador. And she was handing out masks. She did approach three women uh, with their kids, and they basically refused to put on masks. They just said, no, sorry, we're not going to do it. And they were in a crowded playground. There was a group of about six kids swinging on a tire. I'm glad to see a tire swing in the middle of New York City. We didn't have those in, <laughs> way back. Um, no masks, kids, bunch of kids. So really a very se- a scene of contrast. I like to see social distancing ambassadors in Connecticut. I want to apply for that job and get that job. Not me. Uh, Renny, what do you think in terms of, of the, the approach that uh, Connecticut and, and New York City has taken in, in the slow reopening? And we know here in Connecticut, bars still not open. That might be a good thing, what we've seen with surges in other states when bars have reopened. Right. I mean, and, and the other thing I would point out that um, just to come back to something jo- uh, Jonathan said um, earlier, um, the, the fact that there has been coordination and cooperation among the states in the Northeast around some of these issues, I think, I, I think really matters. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that that is, you know, evidence of um, both what um, uh, kind of nimbleness in trying to figure out how to handle, uh, you know, this enormous problem. But also, I think it may, um, you know, it may be a way forward in the future for more cooperation, you know, these kinds of regional, um, uh, you know, um, compacts and so forth around these these issues. Um, so I guess from my point of view, um, I think it is the governors have to do what they think is right with respect to, you know, the health and safety of people who live in Connecticut. But I also think the fact that they are coordinating and cooperating um, makes whatever actions they take more effective. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, and let me, uh, let me, let, let me, let me add ahead. to that. I think it's kind of interesting because honestly, Renny, as you know, and I think everybody knows, it was also in response to what took place with Rhode Island. <laughs> we can't forget what yes. happened in Rhode Island, too. So exactly. I, I think it was just a way to kind of counterbalance the concerns surrounding these, these states and, and what they could compete against, even against each other. So it's an interesting mm-hmm. response. But I, I mean, think well, now they're all on the same page, if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken, right? Even up to and including, you know, quarantining people, which is what Rhode Island started doing, right? right. Before we did here. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. Jonathan, we're hearing and seeing headlines that a lot of New Yorkers are fleeing uh, New York and, and coming back to Connecticut. You think this is a short term trend? I do. I do. I think, as you know, I, I, I wrote that for my column for uh, Connecticut News Junkie uh, last week. I uh, got a lot of feedback, actually, on it, probably more than usual, especially on Twitter. Um, I, I think it's an interesting trend, but I think it's a temporary one. Uh, you know, I think it's no secret that in Connecticut, uh, you know, we have very much been favorable towards suburbs. 
uh, um, certainly politically and, and in many ways even economically. And it's been a concern of ours for, for really a generation since many millennials and Generation Z want to live in mega cities, big cities. Uh, and now this is almost tipping things to go in, in our direction. But I just wonder how long this trend will be. Um, by some indicators, they're saying if it lasts for more than a year, even maybe two or even three years, and we get at least a 5% at least bump uh, in revenue because of taxes and, and fees and fines and that kind of thing, then it could be a, a benefit for us. But I don't see it lasting that long. Dan, do you agree? Uh, no, I, I think we, I'm a little bit more optimistic, although I'm a little bit more pessimistic about what's happening now. That is to say, I'm not sure we are seeing a trend yet, but I think we will see something pick up because many of the, and, and we reported at, at Hearst that 10,000 people in the first three months, March, April, May, had changed their addresses from a New York address to a Connecticut address, largely Fairfield County. And while that's great news, it may just be young people staying with, you know, parents or friends, you know, from Brooklyn who don't want to be in Brooklyn and they're not working anyway in New York during those months. So, but the, the, the pessim the optimistic view is they're here, they are here now. And so to, uh, to Jonathan's point there, there are tipping points and maybe we will have one when people see that life in Connecticut is pretty good. I, you know, I think those of us on the, on this show here now, we like it here. We've been here a long time lifestyle is pretty good. We can get to the city. We can get to Boston. Um, we can get to the mountains. We can't get to the beaches, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about that. <laughs> it, it, I'd like to, I just want to quickly point out that New York state is the largest state for sending people migrating to Connecticut. Connecticut, as we all famously know, loses thousands of people every year to other states. But New York sends an average over the last five years of, or seven years, of 9,400 people per year to Connecticut. So that trend is not new. People move from New York to Connecticut. The question is whether it'll pick up. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You're hearing Dan Haar, columnist and associate editor at Hearst, Connecticut, Renny Folco, director of public policy and law at Trinity College, and jo Dr. Jonathan Wharton, associate professor of political science and urban affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. They're all on Zoom today as we talk about uh, the issues in our state over the last week. Uh, coming up, some big issues expected to come up during a special session that could begin tomorrow. More right after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Twitter at WMPR Wheelhouse. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On the panel today, Rennie Folko, Director of Public Policy and Law at Trinity College, Dan Haar, Columnist and Associate Editor at Hearst, Connecticut, and Dr. Jonathan Wharton, Associate Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. You can join us too. Find us on Twitter at WMPR Wheelhouse. The Connecticut House could meet in a special session as soon as tomorrow. Is it really happening? I feel like we've been talking about this every week. Tomorrow, the House could meet to consider a new set of rules for police officers and expanded absentee voting for the November election. Now, we've talked about police accountability proposals that lawmakers will weigh in uh, for a few weeks now. But there was an interesting public hearing last Friday about the bill, 150 people uh, signing up to testify virtually in a Zoom public hearing. State lawmakers on the Judiciary Committee joined from their living rooms and from 
uh, some from their backyards. Uh, Jonathan, again, given the moment our country is in, what makes this police accountability bill a difficult decision for lawmakers? Well, for one, everything you just mentioned. I mean, how rare is it to do all this distantly? And as you know, and your listeners know, I mean, how many months have have people been wanting in Connecticut to have meetings taking place online? I mean, this has been a contentious issue, something I have raised so many times. If city and town halls can do these meetings online, why couldn't our General Assembly do this much earlier? And instead, why are they doing this in a special session in the middle of summer? It's it's just irritating how long the delays have been for this. And I think that partly explains why there's such an interest in this. And of course, the timeliness of this in light of all the protests and demonstrations about police brutality, just adds to everything. So I think a part of this is a processing, a part of it is a timing thing, a part of it is just more participation thing to, to add to everything. Dan, uh, Hearst uh, reported that this police accountability bill could be in peril. What, what do you mean? What's happening? Well, the only thing more unusual than an online public hearing is an attempt in Connecticut to do a major reform in a one-day special session or a, or a one-week special session mm-hmm. where there are two meeting dates, one for the House and one for the Senate. It's not going to happen. I, I, I'm, I'm pessimistic that it's going to happen. I shouldn't say it's not going to happen. I'm pessimistic that it's going to happen. And when I spoke with legislators yesterday, uh, some legislators I spoke with, you can sort of hear in their voice that they've gone from this is happening, the train is on the track to, well, we think we can save it. The issue is uh, qualified immunity. And that is the issue that uh, most came up in the public hearing on Friday, especially among uh, members of the uh, uh, police forces that spoke and said, you know, look, if we don't have immunity from lawsuits in some form, obviously if, if heinous acts are committed that are not, uh, covered under your training. That is not covered by qualified by immunity. That's why it's called qualified immunity. And I think uh, other people on, mm. uh, here can talk about it more mm. than I can. But the, the long and the short of it is that that's a hot button issue. It is viewed as a disincentive for people to go into the profession, which is already strangely having trouble attracting people. And uh, it, therefore, a group of Democrats in the Senate Five or six Democrats told the governor yesterday they can't support this. And that started to unravel the whole thing. And when things unravel in a special session, they don't ravel back again very easily. You mentioned Democrats, including Senator Austin, who has a, a correctional background. Uh, you know, I wanted to go to you, Rennie, because you've been teaching about qualified immunity. Uh, tell us more about uh, this protection uh, for police officers. And we're hearing from activists who say, what's the big deal? Because if an officer is doing their job correctly, they're not going to have to worry about any liability. Right. And um, I think what's important to understand is that this this doctrine of qualified immunity is really the consequence um, of a series of Supreme Court decisions that um, over time, um, as you went from one case to the next, created what is now the doctrine of qualified immunity. And um, it's complicated and, you know, there are a lot of legal technicalities, but I think the important um, point for your listeners to understand is that um, what has happened over the course of several decades is the court has interpreted this doctrine to make it virtually impossible for an individual um, who believes he or she has a legitimate claim to make that claim. And it's because what the court has done 
is to um, uh, create a situation in which in order to make a claim as an individual, you have to be able to demonstrate that there is a similar case with similar facts. And very often that is not possible. In other words, each case is a little bit different. And so the courts have tended to rule in favor of the police based on this idea that the case in front of them mm -hmm. is not enough like a prior case to be able to rule in a different way. I hope that that is clear. Would anybody like to ask a question about that piece of it? That That's what the court has done. And I think what's happened um, is that there have been several um, cases, they've been bubbling up and they the court has been asked to renew their um, review of these cases and the, the court chose not to do so this term. And you had the unlikely partnership of Justice Sotomayor and Justice Thomas both saying they believe that this doctrine needs to be reviewed by the court because the court created it. Hmm. Uh, when we talked about officers being worried about, um, you know, this protection going away from civil lawsuits, but Jonathan, from the municipal uh, standpoint, are towns worried that private insurance companies, will they be willing to cover police departments if qualified immunity goes away and how that will uh, impact cities and towns? I think it will. And, and considering we have so many towns and cities here in Connecticut, I mean, 169 municipalities, we already know there's a lot of resources already stretched as it is financially in other areas. And public safety is a significant, uh, you know, piece of the budget, especially in many of our cities. And, you know, it's just, it's such an interesting time that this is, this is being, you know, addressed and tackled right now by a general assembly. But I, I really do worry about these towns and cities, Lucy. I, I, I don't know. It, it's such a, you know, between that and education, we're forgetting that's almost more than, that's got to be more than half the, the size of a budget. Uh, and you throw in retirements and, and pensions and everything else, it, it, you know, you're pretty much gobbling up the pie with the expenses at, at the local level. Dan, we know that qualified immunity, again, is a, a big issue. But the question is, will the rest of this police accountability bill unravel um, as the, the session uh, starts up? There are some really important other measures in here, including um, allowing prosecutors ability to interview on cooperative witnesses, this idea of an inspector general and and requiring all police to use a body and dash cams. That's right. And don't forget subpoena power of yeah. independent review boards. That's a really big one as well. Uh, I think it, I was pessimistic a few minutes ago, uh, maybe a, a little too pessimistic because the governor, among other people, uh, believes that they're willing to throw qualified immunity, the elimination of that uh, out in favor of getting a bill. It's the good versus the perfect. And um, yeah, this is a really big bill, even without qualified immunity. There are people in the legislature that we've spoken with who believe that without that, uh, it, it, there's not a reform worth doing. Mo probably more than, you know, we, I, I can't say the numbers, but a significant number believe, including the governor and led by the governor, let's get something done that we can get done now. So that's where that stands. And, and the subpoena power, the, um, the review boards, those are all big deal. We're going to have to move on before we run out of time. But it is interesting, again, that we've got a 
primary coming up. And earlier this week, the chief justice of the state Supreme Court rejected an effort by four GOP congressional candidates who wanted to block the state from sending out large numbers of absentee ballots during the pandemic. Uh, Chief uh, Robinson, Chief Justice Robinson saying the case should have been filed in Superior Court. So that's where they went. And then just yesterday, the Superior Court, a different judge also refusing to block the absentee ballots. Uh, so uh, when it really, Renny, what is the argument for um, the Republicans uh, that have uh, challenged this, that they see this uh, expansion of absentee ballots uh, in the primary as an issue? Um, well, I think there may be, you know, some legal issues that are worth talking about, but I think the real issue here is a political issue. And we know that the president of the United States, who is a Republican, is on a mission, I think, to undermine um, what the integrity um, of mail-in ballots. And he, he has said so. He thinks that they create fraud and that they create, you know, that people who shouldn't be able to vote are able to vote. But of course, in the midst of a pandemic, um, we, you know, I think that has been obviously the impetus for having more mail-in ballots. And what I find interesting is, you know, as I read more broadly across the country, I think there are a lot of Republicans um, in, in, in very red states who actually are not on board with the president on this. In other words, they feel that mail-in ballots are important because very often um, Republicans use them more than Democrats do, in fact. And, you know, we know famously that the president and many of his advisors and members of his family uh, all use mail-in ballots. So I really think that this is a political issue. And I am not sure if the president of the United States was not pushing it, that you would have Republicans in Connecticut opposing it in quite the way they are. But mm. that's my take on it. Uh, Jonathan, we should say other states have had no excuse mail-in voting for some time. Uh, People say this isn't about voter fraud. It's really about voter suppression. What are your thoughts on that? Look, it's it's a very complicated issue. When you're dealing with states where they're dealing with this for the first time, like Connecticut and other states, whereas other states, they're more effective at dealing with it, you know, it's a trial and error. And I think that that's the concern that we're faced with in Connecticut. And a lot of states have never had it before. Uh, You know, how do you address these, these issues uh, which is in some ways even separate from fraud. I mean, just to process and deal with this is very difficult. Plus, I think many people forget, you know, we have absentee ballots, and then, of course, we have the mailed-in ballots. And so, the, you know, they're really two separate things. And then, of course, you throw in all the municipalities that exist here in Connecticut. I mean, the register of voters, there's so many of them for, for both parties, and I can't forget the third parties, because in some towns, some cities, they're you know, the working families has got that presence also in city in town halls. So think about the coordinating effort, Lucy, between, <laughs> you know, the, between all the municipalities and, and registrars and officials and the parties. And then the first time they're going to try to do this. You know, I've been more of an advocate for early voting. I wish that Connecticut would get on board with that more than anything else to deal with this. But I know Connecticut and Atlanta City habits, we don't like change. And I get it. It really, really frustrates me. We can't find better ways of dealing with this as an issue. Mm. Dan, quickly, I wanted you to hear your thoughts on this. Jonathan likes early voting. I like often voting. Um, the, the reality is that the, what the Republicans are saying is not incorrect, that there are avenues for fraud. That is, any of us could take one of these 1.2 million ballots and send it in and, and, and commit uh, a felony. No one does it. That's the issue. And so uh, I think it's fraught by the, the overlay of, of practicality, law, politics. And what I'd like to see is a professional um, across the board election system and get rid of this nonsense of locally elected registrars that don't know what they're doing. 
Dan Haar is on the wheelhouse this week. Oh, we got to go to break, Renny. Sorry. Uh, he's a columnist okay. and associate editor at Hearst, Connecticut. Renny Folco here, director of public policy and law at Trinity College, and Dr. Jonathan Wharton from Southern Connecticut. Coming up, who wants to go to the beach? Who's allowed to go to the beach? We'll talk about that. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As coronavirus lingers throughout the state, some towns have weekend restrictions on who can use their beaches to limit crowds during the pandemic. But this also brings up some longstanding issues about who should be able to access beaches and whether town restrictions are really efforts to keep out people of color. Uh, We're running out of time. So, Jonathan Wharton, I know you live along the shore. What's your take on these beach restrictions popping up again in this pandemic? Do towns have a, a, a reason to do this or or is this more about keeping outsiders out? A bit of both. Um, you know, I certainly want to mention Andrew Cole's book, because I know you've certainly had him on, on the air mm-hmm. about Free the Beaches and, and the story of Ned Cole and how he's trying to deal with this along the shoreline. Um, it's been a thorny issue for years, for generations, especially wherever that high tide mark is for, for people to at least be on beaches. Um, and so a part of it we, we forget is that along the, the Connecticut shoreline, especially, there are some areas where it's exclusive to just the neighborhood and they, they have those beach rights. Um, and uh, this has been an issue that i followed for years only because I think you know Lucy and others, I, I absolutely love the shoreline, but it can be difficult to get access. Of course, we have our state parks, thankfully, but that's sometimes it's not enough, especially since they've been closing early. Uh, Dan, Connecticut Post has been covering this. Uh, Lamont telling, Governor Lamont telling the Connecticut Post recently the pandemic requires extraordinary measures. It seems like towns like Fairfield and Norwalk have, uh, or Norfolk have the, Norwalk, I believe, have the ability to have weekend access. Yeah, that was the, the governor. I was surprised. I was the one who asked that question in mm-hmm. the scrum yesterday uh, at Windsor Town Hall when they were talking about elections. The, I was kind of surprised that he punted on the issue because remember he was a selectman in Greenwich when, and I don't know whether it was at the time when they had that case, but the, the law seems pretty clear and absent a, an, an executive order that says that towns can bar out of town residents. It seems like the state could step in. Certainly it's in his right to not step in. It's a local issue, but you know what these towns are doing is just plain wrong. Mm. You brought up Andrew Carl earlier, Jonathan, uh, when we see uh, the fact that, you know, in this country, uh, privatization, uh, so many people that have the means of moving out to the burbs and uh, closing uh, their communities to outsiders. It's no wonder that places are overcrowded. There aren't a lot of places to go for people who don't have the means and can just step out in their backyard and enjoy Long Island Sound. Right. And it also points to really connect exclusivity. I think too often we forget as progressive and as liberal supposedly as Connecticut is, we love to be exclusive and be amongst ourselves and, and purely be that way. And historically it's been that way here in Connecticut, especially along the shoreline. Uh, and so sometimes when we're dealing with these issues of social injustice and, and, and these issues, sometimes we have to kind of look at ourselves in the mirror and acknowledge that, hey, this is in our own backyards. Mm. Renny, what do you think? I mean, I, I think I agree with everything that's been said. Um, you know, I think this is a fraught issue And although one might be able certainly to make arguments that you want to limit, um, you know, attendance, let's say, or the number of people who can come to the beach. In other words, there may be legitimate reasons to do that. The question is, you know, on what basis are you doing it? And and do you actually have the authority to do it? And and I I 
I, I just wonder if how if if this will actually be litigated. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts on that. Mm, Dan, what are, what are you guys hearing? I, I don't. It, it, there's so much going on, and both the governor and the lieutenant governor yesterday kind of punted on the issue and said, to your point about extraordinary measures, I don't see this coming up as a litigated effort because it was so hard and took so long to get these towns to turn around and they have so many ways of doing it. Um, To Jonathan's point about the exclusiveness of it, I heard, and I don't know how accurate this is, that that there were only seven miles of public shoreline in the whole Connecticut Sound shore out of, what is it, 110 or so? Wow. Wow. One more on this, uh, Dan, if we know that out-of-towners have to go to City Hall during the weekday uh, or week uh, to get a beach pass or if parking fees are several times higher than for uh, residents, uh, is the beach really open to everyone? The beach is definitely not open to everyone. And I guess uh, I think Rennie said it best is, is that what is the basis? It may also not quite be exactly what you want to say first come, first serve, right? Because Perhaps we want to have some advantage to town. Maybe what they can do is have some town spaces set aside. Would that work? I don't know, Rennie, if you think that would work. Some spaces for town residents and some for out-of-towners and that they sort of fill up separately. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I would actually have to go back and look at at, at the decision from 2001, right, which is, you know, the decision um, Greenwich, about, right? about Greenwich mm-hmm. and, and and take a good look at that. But, you know, I'm thinking of places where I visited like Cape Cod, right, and that there is limited access to certain beaches there, um, not only for year round residents, right, but for people who visit. And um, I don't know. I I just don't know enough about it to be able to say with a degree of confidence whether that would work or not. But, um, you know, I think I think this really goes goes beyond if we start talking about it and thinking about it. You know, this is this is a problem that goes beyond the current pandemic. Mm-hmm. We're going to move on to feats of strength and airing of grievances. Uh, Dan Har, I'll start with you. One word. Baseball. It's back. <laughs> That's it. Baseball. The opening day is tomorrow for the Yankees. I don't know if tonight for the Red Sox or when it is, but. Opening day for the Yankees is tomorrow against the Nationals. All right, Jonathan Wharton. I don't want to bring up baseball because I'm a Mets fan. So <laughs> I've already survived after this weekend, especially getting beat down by friends. Um, but I, I will say that I, I'm very pleased, as I said earlier, that Southerners being as responsive as they can about this issue. I know Rennie and I are concerned with being in the classroom. Uh, they actually took up my question, Lucy, about the chairs business. Uh, they kind of scoffed and laughed at it, but they enjoyed the question that they asked online. Because, uh, you know, there are concerns, but what can we do uh, in terms of, of doing things outside? Um, and, and is it possible? And I say, why not? You know, it's not unusual. Sometimes I do take my classes outside. So I'm looking forward to doing that uh, next month when we begin. And Renny Falco. Yeah, I just would probably have a shout out to everybody who is really working hard, whether it's at Trinity or at Southern or in the government or in the local grocery store or hospital just to try to get us through this. I think about it every day when I wake up and every day when I go to sleep. 
Definitely. You know, I have two school-aged children. I sat through a four-hour school board meeting on Zoom the other night. Uh, school administrators, board members, and staff, we know not just in my town, but across the state are working long hours to try to come up with a safe plan for students and teaching staff if schools do fully reopen. And even if not, they don't reopen, what will uh, online education continue to look like? I think uh, we need to remember that there are a lot of people working behind the scenes to try to find a, a, some kind of solution. It's a challenging time. And so I want us to think about them um, as we uh, move forward in the next couple of weeks to see what happens here in our state. But I want to thank our panelists, uh, Dan Haar. Thanks so much for coming on. Columnist and associate editor at Hearst, Connecticut. Also, Rennie Folco, director of public policy and law at Trinity College. And Dr. Jonathan Wharton, associate professor of political science and urban affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. Our Zoom connection held up. Uh, we're going to be back next week. Thanks to producer Matt Dwight. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening to The Wheelhouse. You can find us on Twitter at WMPR Wheelhouse. More next week.